On the Empire Podcast this week, we high-five each other furiously. Let's have a high-five, Helen. James, it's amazing. Uh, as Fast and Furious 7 drops in for one last ludicrous ride, and, of course, ludicrous ride, while uh, Battlestar Galactica Grand Poobah Ronald D. Moore drops by for a deeply nerdy chat. All that and more on the movie podcast that has taken a vow of Cylons. Hmm... Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning who are gearing up for their live televised debate tonight. In the red corner, voting Labour, <laughs> is Helen O'Hara, who promises a fair and equal distribution of wages for all and a land where every home will have its own dragon or Winchester. Is that is that right, Helen? Is that your manifesto that promise? That is my manifesto yeah. promise, yes. Although, if you if you pay really high taxes, you can have both a dragon and a Winchester. Or both Winchesters. Yeah, in the blue corner, in the very blue corner, in the deeply blue corner, uh, it's it's <laughs> it's James Dyer, uh, who would happily kill us all and rule over the ashes. I believe that is your manifesto pledge as well. Is that as true? I sit here in my robes and hood, yes. <laughs> the Palpatine agenda is the one I pursue. So be it, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> you want this, don't you? Take it. <laughs> okay, let's move on with uh, a Twitter question. This one's from at GazJPS, who says, after listening to last week's podcast, what is the best pre-film studio logo? Universal is good. Mm -hmm, It is. But I do like DreamWorks. (laughs) (laughs) I should fill you in very, very quickly. (laughs) We have done this before. We got to this bit Basically, Helen forgot to record the podcast. Uh, and and we got to this bit, and we have done this question already, and then at that very moment, I did a halting version. I, I think you it, it was a beautiful, beautiful version of the DreamWorks theme tune. Bing, 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 bing. So this I'm is even the, doing air guitar. This is the second time we've done this. It's much like being in a Sandy Kubrick movie. And, I thought it was much uh, better second time. Although this uh, this is actually very appropriate because obviously we have our Battlestar Galactica themed interview and all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. I hope not. I have an eye press recorded. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just going to double check. Yes, we are recording, which is good. So, yes, let's talk about Gaz's question. Uh, what's the best, the best studio logo? What's we, the one that stirs the, the old feelings? We've had, we've discussed this in the office from time to time. We discussed yeah. this literally two minutes ago. Yeah. But yes. Well, no, but also, <laughs> and you know, it, what it always comes down to for me is that whatever I am watching at that particular moment, I'm going, oh, this one's definitely the best, definitely. So the mercurial. Fox fanfare comes on. You, oh, well, nothing can beat the Fox fanfare, and then and then you go into a different film. You're like, oh, this is brilliant, isn't it? No, I disagree. Um, <laughs> the Fox fanfare, yes, because the Fox fanfare to me is an integral part of the Star Wars soundtrack. You almost can't say it's, I mean, it's on the Star Wars soundtrack. You really uh, can't. It's also on the Predator soundtrack. Uh, yes, and, you know, an alien. It's so many iconic things. But as, as I said the last time we did this, uh, Carol Coe is one that always sits with me because uh, it uses the Rambo music. Bam, 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 bam. You don't remember it at all, do you? No. No, no. Okay. no. You're on your own. You're all too young. On your own. The only thing I, I, in my head, the only thing I can remember the Carol Cole logo being over right now is Total Recall. Mm. And that uses Jerry Goldsmith's music. Mm. And I like that. I like that when the music plays over the, the logo. But um, but yeah, I know it's Fox. It's Fox for me. 
just because of, of Star Wars. I know we've said this in the podcast before, but that's going to be a big loss for me whenever Force Awakens comes out at the end of the year. Yeah. And, you know, and I would honestly, I would just throw money at Fox until they let us. <laughs> <laughs> until, you know, I know it's, it'd be weird, but just let, that's, that's an integral part of the, 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 the process for me. And when the Clone Wars movie came out a few yeah. years ago, it was released by Warner Brothers and it didn't have the Fox logo. It had the Star Wars theme. It didn't have the Fox logo and it was just, it just felt wrong. We didn't use the Star Wars music either. Yeah, that's true. Mm. It wasn't yeah. John Williams. But I, I, you know what? I actually really, I, I'm not sure if I would say like it, uh, but what stands out for me is uh, uh, um, Studio Canal for its, its curious mix of Shaolin monks and opera singers. You know, it goes, <laughs> Ooh, ha, what? And then there's a person singing in the background. It's very, very peculiar. <laughs> I highly recommend you listen to it. Okay, okay. So Paramount, okay, let's talk about the big studios. Mm. Okay, so Paramount, Big Mountain. Big Mountain. Not such great music, I think it's fair to say, for Paramount, but... But I do like the logo. I love the mountain mm. and the stars. I think that looks really cool. Do you like the way the stars nice yeah. swirl around it? Rush around the mountain. I think yeah. It's really cool. Uh, Warner's Shield. I think this is, what, this is what probably inspired the question last week. I was talking about the different iterations of the Warner's Shield throughout mm. the years. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's nice. I like the Warner's yeah, Shield. I do um, uh, Universal, the Globe. Universal's good because they're more willing to mess with their logo than most. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe DreamWorks in second place there, but I feel like they are more willing to kind of customize it for film. So you get like, oh, I can't remember which Fast and Furious film, but it turns into a hubcap, for example, in Waterworld, the world yep. drowns. Like Pilgrim. You Scott the Pilgrim, the eight bit theme. Mm-hmm. Like there's cool stuff that they're willing to do, which I think is kind of fun. The you know, Scott Pilgrim version of that of the Universal theme was my ringtone until everyone got annoyed. Yeah, yeah, it was. We did uh, I about, about two days. About two days, I think. <laughs> Touchstone to me always screams eighties VHS oh, yes. with that two tone synthesizer. Uh-huh. That's uh, that's a great one. And Disney actually always. Uh, I think the Little Mermaid was the first one that used it in the modern age, and it always brings me back to having to watch that every single week when my little sister was obsessed with it as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a lot of affection for that. What about MGM? Did you see the the meme thing that went around recently? It was it, it shone from shone from the back? Yes. Yeah, with the sedated lion. With the, with, with, with yeah, but the the the, the fake photoshopped picture. Yeah, is that the one? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. It was. Uh, yeah, it was funny. It was funny. Yeah. Um, Rank, little, which I did. That's ah. me with the gong. Um, <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> J. Arthur Rank. Dangerous territory, but yes, uh, the man beating the gong. Yeah, you like that one. Yeah, uh, but yeah, the, the lion. It's 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 for me. It's probably okay. I'm gonna go top three. All right. All right. Just in, in stirring feelings of excitement when you see a movie a studio's logo. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Fox, just because it awakens the Star Wars fan in me, uh, even if what I'm gonna watch is another Ice Age, um, and feels like another Ice Age. Um, Fox, the lion. The Lion Studio, that one, that's good, and and because I'm a walking cliche, Marvel, Marvel Studios. When I see that logo at the moment, and when I hear the that music by Brian Tyler, uh, I I get excited, and I'm looking forward to getting excited in in just over a week. Helen, you didn't oh, say Pixar. No, I didn't Pixar. say Pixar. We've all failed as human beings. No, you two have failed as human human beings. Yeah, you you hate Pixar because you hate joy. I do hate joy. Inside Out was going to be tough for you, which is a Pixar <laughs> film about a character called Joy. Yeah. Hang on. You, sorry, what? No, I don't hate Pixar. Okay. All. I'm exaggerating. Oh, all right. Okay. All right. Uh, James, top three. Go. Oh, Money Your Mouth is. It is Fox. It is Fox. Um, uh, Carol Coe, obviously, for me. I like RKO, actually. I really like the fact that the Morse code in it actually says, attention, attention, an RKO picture. 
Uh, I think that's quite cool. Damn, that's a very good answer. Uh, Pixar, thank yeah, you. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, Fox and... Oh, I, I don't know. I feel Go like left somebody, field, say Orion. Um, I quite like the visuals on the Lionsgate logo right now. So Lionsgate. Remind me of that, of what it it's, is. It's like a cool, like, it looks like a clockwork thing and then it kind of zooms out and it's Lionsgate. Okay. All right, you've sold me. <laughs> you've sold me. All right, so uh, that is the definitive answer. We're all over the place, as usual. Um, if you would like to have your uh, question read out on the Emperor Podcast, you can tweet us. We're at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. Uh, you can Facebook us, because we are on Facebook as Emperor Magazine. And you can email us, podcast at Empire Online. Okay, we're going to go straight into movie news now. Uh it's got a lot of stuff this week. A uh, lot of big, interesting news. Um, <laughs> but we should probably start by talking about our big night, shouldn't we? The big the big evening. Shouldn't we, James? Oh, just, you mean the, yeah. the Walking Dead season finale? Yes, it was no. very, very good. I enjoyed it. I thought they did a fantastic job with that. I'm pretty sure, James, that he means... The Empire Award. Jameson oh, right, right. Oh, yes, that. You yes. don't remember because you were literally concussed. Mm, that's but true. It happened on Sunday, and it was a very big deal. We had some extremely big stars in the room, um, and and I think everybody had a very very good time. Uh, Christopher Nolan was there. He's probably the big winner of the night for Interstellar. He got his own sort of personal award for being like a, an icon. Um, and <laughs> for being like, like an icon like totally uh, an icon or whatever he got the Empire Inspiration Award Inspiration, I apologise there you go um, and he also picked up two awards for Interstellar which is no mean feat mm-hmm. um, as voted for of course by you the cinema going public well done. via gravity via gravity <laughs> mm. yes, future Chris Nolan <laughs> uh, defies the way to vote for Interstellar through a tesseract by pushing books off a shelf onto someone's laptop Hence, pressing the vote button. Ironically, that's not dissimilar to how we do actually tally the votes. So that works out quite well. It's a high-tech system. Yeah, it is. Um, Someone pointed out the other day, Luke Whiston, who's a a really nice guy, a really good writer, uh, who uh, writes and designs stuff occasionally for the... Not occasionally, sorry, my my mistake. Who writes and designs stuff for the Shiznit. uh, And uh, he pointed out, I don't know if you, you, whether you guys have seen these movies, but that Interstellar has essentially the same plot device as Insidious chapters one and two. <laughs> yes, I in, suppose it does. In which, that's kind of weird. I wonder if Chris Nolan's a, a fan. I, I think after this week, he certainly would be a fan of James Wan, um, which we'll get to a bit later. <laughs> I'm sure Chris Nolan would be a big fan of Fast 7. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was great. He was there in the night, a big, big winner. There was a, a lot of good names as well. Ray Fiennes or Ralph Fiennes uh, picked up the Empire Legend Award, uh, yes. because he is a legend, and he, he was given the Empire Legend Award by, drumroll, Liam Neeson. Um, yeah, Big Liam turned up, and uh, and and gave and gave and gave gave one to Ralph. Um, uh, I should probably rephrase that, but probably. it was a Schindler's List reunion. It was. So you know, good to see those guys of. I've put put <laughs> bygones big bygones, uh, but yeah, it was it was great to see, great to see that. Uh, who else was there? Who what were the big names? Uh, Henry Cavill, Superman himself, doesn't get much bigger or wider. Or, indeed, his that arms guy. are huge. Dear Lord, he was. I think I'm going to name him star of the show, Henry Cavill, just for his performance at the after show, which neither of you were at. But he danced pretty much solidly up until the end. 
That's because his well, energy levels yeah. are... He uh, lodged it until 3am yeah. at the after show. He'd, he'd probably accidentally eaten a volivant or something, so he had to burn off those calories. Perhaps. <laughs> but he, he's got, the man's got some moves. The man has got some moves. It's, uh, yeah. Did he, did he extend the life of the after party by flying backwards around the earth, thus giving us uh, more time? Would explain why I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, no, he was... He was uh, he was a star of that. That was that was quite good. Also, he's he's really into video games. He, oh. I overheard him chatting to one of our freelancers about uh, kickstarted RPG game Pillars of Eternity, which apparently he's playing religiously at the moment. Hot tip for you. Ah, interesting. Uh, Jessica Chastain was also there. The lovely um, Jessica Chastain. Now, this is interesting. You may not know this. James McAvoy wasn't there. Uh, he was just a, a sort of astral projection into our minds. <laughs> this good. year, yeah. yeah. Um, and Dan- Daniel Radcliffe was there. Andy yep. Circus. He um, apparated in. He did. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want to take London public transport. Uh, yeah, it was a really good night. Who else? Who else? The lovely Karen Gillan. Karen Gillan. Lovely Karen Gillan. Simon Pegg. Uh, the lovely Olga Kurylenko. Um, Mark Strong. Hayley Atwell. <gasps> I honestly have a bit of a blank when it, when it comes to remembering people I, I talked to. Peter Capaldi. Uh, Jason Isaacs. It was good to see Jason Isaacs back at the uh, Empire Awards after a while. And it was hosted by Jimmy Nesbitt. And it was a good night. It was a really fun night. And I think a lot of people... Um, liked the spread of awards uh, and it was it, you know I know it's because it's 44 better readers and the one thing I like about the Empire Awards is you know that we actually do celebrate movies that people go to see yeah absolutely I, if, if I were to recommend watching any two speeches um, it would be Rosamund Pike's video oh, acceptance so speech for Gone Girl it's wonderful and also Ray Fine's fine speech it's absolutely charming and an object lesson in how to be self-deprecating and, and generally wonderful so absolutely go oh, watch those they're both on the site let's yes. move on uh, so uh, yesterday was April Fool's Day mm-hmm. so there was a lot of hilarious movie news going around but uh, one actual true tidbit that came out was that uh, Deadpool is going to be rated R I went R uh, for Pirates be, yeah I mean, they've been talking about that for a while, but it's it's really good to have yet another commitment to the R R rating. The the photo that came out, I thought, was the most perfect first look at Deadpool that you could possibly have, lying on a fur rug, if you remember, in front mm-hmm. of a roaring fire, rather, you know, seductively. So I'm um, I'm I'm quite excited. I think it, it it all looks like he like they're trying to do it right this time, which can only be a good thing. Absolutely, I'm excited about it. I don't know how it's going to fit into the X Men universe, and perhaps they don't care. Maybe it just won't. Yeah. Maybe it won't. See what happens. Uh, what else should we talk about? Uh, and the uh, Magnificent Seven is adding more and more people constantly. It's adding uh, Vincent D'Onofrio as the bad guy. Excellent. Adding to a cast which already includes Denzel Washington, who'll uh, play the Yul Brynner role. I spoke to Antoine Fuqua last week, and Ethan Hawke's going to play the Robert Fawn role, I believe. So he's a, a gunslinger who's lost his nerve. And then there's uh, Chris Pratt, in the Steve McQueen role, and Hayley Bennett as well. Um, she won't be part of the Seven, I believe, but she'll be like someone who recruits the Seven. So that's all cool. And now Luke Grimes has come on board, uh, a young actor. He was uh, last seen in American Sniper. So I'm very excited about this movie. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be interesting. You think it's going to be magnificent? I'm not going to go that far. I'm, okay. I'm not prepared to <laughs> commit to that at this point. But heck of a cast. Decent screenplay. John Lee Hancock, Nick Pizzolatto from True Detective, uh, having a go at it. Yeah, well done. I'm excited. Let's do it. Anything else to talk about? Um, well, we talked about X-Men just a moment ago. There's Hugh Jackman news of two sorts. Uh, first of all, he says that uh, 2017's third solo Wolverine film could be his last outing with mm. the clause, mm-hmm. which is, of course, you know, a giant blow to me personally, and I guess to some other people probably too. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. 
Yeah, that, I do feel a little bit like that, but it will be like 17 years of playing Wolverine by that point, yeah. which is a good run by anyone's standards. But he does seem to fear wildly between, right, at some point I've got to call it a day, yeah. uh, and then, no, I'm going to play this role forever. You're going to prize the claws out of my cold, dead hands. I'm going to play him until I'm 70 and I can do Old Man Logan. And, that you know. would be okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't think he necessarily needs to do it. And I get we're expecting him to pop up at some point in Apocalypse as well. He may not be have a focal role yeah. in this one, but it would be weird to have an X-Men movie without him. It would be. I'm I'm okay with, with you know, Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine for as long as he wants. Um, and I do think that this is one character he's so identified with his character that if they do decide to eventually recast it, they should wait at least a decade. Yeah, you've like, got a problem recasting three that. Month, three months mm. kind of delays. That's interesting because Matthew Vaughn's original plan was for Days of Future Past to have a younger Wolverine, someone else play the younger Wolverine. Yeah, and that's um, wrong. And, um, yeah. As a mutant who kind of ages very slowly, there's a slight, you know, push your glasses up your nose issue there. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah, quite possibly. And that's simply why they went with Hugh Jackman playing young Hugh Jackman <laughs> in, in Days of Future Past. I mean, I can slightly understand why you might not want to keep working out at that pace forever. Mm-hmm. You know, un- unless you're The Rock, it's quite hard to do forever. Um, and he's been and he's been doing it for quite some time now. He may want to one day eat a cream bun, you know? <laughs> <I'm> sure, <laughs> Just one. I'm sure he's <laughs> allowed. Day. He's allowed to uh, eat cream buns from know. time to time. If not, I'm taking his quota <laughs> and then some. Um, but yes, there's also the news that he's, oh, yes. he's also set to star in and produce a faith-based drama called Apostle Paul, which is literally about the Apostle Paul. Um, so that's a thing that's um, that's happening. Um, if you know your Bible, you'll know he's he wrote some of the New Testament. He received the Damascene conversion. Is it, is it being shot in 69 or are they going to convert it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Theology humour. <laughs> yes. So Is it going to be called The Apostle Saul in cinemas and then The Apostle Paul on DVD? <laughs> eh? Eh? Oh, God, I can keep these coming. No, I don't get I didn't get that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Matt, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are producing. Um, I, I, don't know when, I don't know when the Bible became our go-to source for films, but, you know, I guess. Sure. Uh, that's in the public domain, I guess. <laughs> You know, There's no copyright issues. Yeah, so, you know. God doesn't seem that bothered about people just taking his work. Um, so, yeah, all seems good to me. All right, then. So, mm. But, yeah, I guess it is weird, especially when, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, f- the films we've had based on biblical stories recently, Noah, and to a much greater extent, Exodus, mm. Gods and Kings, have been, shall we, how should we say this, diplomatically without annoying God? Less than slam dunks? yes. Let's say that. Although they did okay at the box office, I guess, so there's there's an appetite out there. Mm. We shall see. We shall bloody well see. Uh, anything else to talk about? Well, I mentioned the finale of The Walking Dead, which if anyone's seen it was fabulous, but I don't know if you covered this in the podcast last week, but uh, obviously the spin-off has a name. Mm-hmm. No, it was announced after we went. Fear live. the Walking Dead. It does. I it do. does. Yes. Fear the Walking <laughs> Dead, which I is going to be a pretty cool, which will, which will, because obviously everyone remembers Walking Dead starts in a kind of 28 days later fashion where he wakes up after it's all done. So this is going to chart the downfall of society and the human race. Ooh, now that's interesting. Uh, so that's, that sounds like essentially the first half of World War Z that they didn't yeah. bother filming for the film. Basically, yes. 
so that's quite exciting. Uh, but Fear the Walking Dead, you know, they obviously rejected, as Chris pointed out, The Walking Dead Miami. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's clearly not. And The Walking Dead Special Victims Unit. <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that would have been awesome. But this is a six episode. They, I think they've already commissioned the second, uh, the second season. But this is a six-episode season that will kind of be a sort of summary replacement, not a replacement, but a summary kind of fillip. If you're having your, if you're missing your Walking Dead uh, fix, along comes Cliff Curtis and Kim Dickens, and so this is like the Agent Carter to Agents of Shield. Yeah, yeah mm, limited, yes, limited length, yes, miniseries between seasons, kind of. Yes, thing. and, and hopefully. And hopefully awesome. And when's hopefully it airing? Awesome. Do we know when it's airing? The I don't know when it's airing over here. Mm. I don't know, honestly, when it's airing over here. Or even if it, you know, I, I can't imagine that uh, some uh, channel over here hasn't snapped it up. That would be moronic if they didn't. But then again, Agent Carter still hasn't had a uh, UK transmission date or anyone snapping it up. And that's ruddy bloody good. So that's a, that's a bit of a strange one. You see some of the, the crap that, you know, some stations buy. And then they... <laughs> Most, most of which you watch I'm not naming any names hi come on come on okay and uh, there's some news as well that Killer Croc may show up in Suicide Squad uh, which is uh, going to start shooting soon for release next August and he will of course be played by Adewale Akinoya Akbaji uh, which is a name I learned to pronounce last year when I uh, hosted a quiz and he was on the, the quiz panel and uh, he complimented me on my pronunciation of his See, name if you'd read the feature that I put together for the website well, I explained exactly how to pronounce his name with the aid of a Stephen Hawking-esque voice. <laughs> we did a whole feature on how to pronounce names, yes. Uh, he will be one of the few uh, actors to cross over and to play roles in both the Marvel and the DC Cinematic Universe. because he was in Thor The Dark World. He was in Thor The Dark World and he was buried under loads of makeup in that one. He probably will be again as Killer Croc. Which is a shame because he's a handsome man. And speaking of handsome men, there's also uh, oh, another little bit of news about Suicide Squad, mm. which is that... Uh, Scott Eastwood will be playing Scott Trevor, apparently. At least he's rumoured to be playing Scott Trevor. They've announced that he has a role. That's the rumour, that, that he would be that l potential future love interest for Wonder Woman. Um, so he, he, he wouldn't have a big role in Suicide Squad, but he'll be in it. If you want to see how crazy Antony is, he's in the upcoming Nicholas Sparks film. Um, and he is, yes, he is the son of Clint. Who among us would wit? Would miss an upcoming Nicholas Sparks film. So. At least two out of three, and I'll only go and see it if someone wants me to review it. So. I think I, I've already seen this one, haven't I? Um, let's see. There's two gorgeous white people. Yes. And they're kept apart by a class divide. Oh, I've mm -hmm. seen that one. Yeah, yep. in somewhere in the south, a really scenic area. Yes. Um, yes. And then someone yeah. dies at the end. Sounds yeah. I think I've seen that one. Yeah. I think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's Scott Eastwood. Uh, yeah, he is. He is. He's very good looking. Very, I mean, wow. I mean, swipe, <laughs> swipe right. Swipe right and that one is right, isn't it? Swipe right. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> all right, okay. So that's all the movie news wrapped up and tied in a nice little bow. Um, and now it's time for this week's guest, Ronald D. Moore. The D stands for Dowell, incidentally, in case you didn't know. Uh, he cut his teeth as a writer on Star Trek The Next Generation and Voyager as well. Uh, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. Before making a big splash as showrunner on the Battlestar Galactica reboot. His new show, Outlander, is currently on Amazon Prime and he came in recently to talk about it with Jimbo and who else? Who else was in the room with you? It was Ali. Ali Plum. I had to think okay. about that for a second. Okay. With Ali. I only had eyes for Ron. So. Yeah, you do because uh, you've, you've interviewed him a few times and uh, things got... 
Well, how nerdy did they get, Jim? But you it have to explain it this. It wasn't the most professional interview I ever conducted because it was a bit like, oh, Klingons! You know, because he's like Mr. Star Trek and Mr. Battlestar Galactica. And I started talking to him about Duros and Gowron and Kaelas. And at that point when Ali was gesticulating wildly, I realized I might have gone off the deep end a little bit. Don't you at some point in this interview... Ask to see his Batleth? Yes. Yeah. But don't you also at some point actually speak Klingon? I'm, if it's still in, yes, I believe I threw a kaplach his way at one point. Um, and how did he take that? I think he just looked at me as if I was some kind of freak, uh, which was fine. Some... No, which was perfectly acceptable and the correct response. So he passed. That's good. But no, it was it was it was very interesting. I tried not to I tried not to nerd out too much about uh, about Battlestar and whatnot. Though weirdly, I've got really into Outlander actually, um, which is a surprisingly good show. I'm enjoying it a lot. You do this a lot. It's amazing. One of my favourite things you've done. with faint praise. Yeah, well, I was expecting your show to be sad to suck, <laughs> but actually it's okay. One of my favourite things you've ever done on the podcast is that Julian Anderson interview where you say to her face, so I've seen The Fall, it's actually surprisingly good. And she... <laughs> yeah. She did pull me up on that, as I recall, as well. Uh, no, I didn't mean it that way. It's just because Outlander is... Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's it's not Battlestar Galactica. It, no, it's not Battlestar Galactica. It a has the reputation of being a slightly girly show of, aimed at female audience. It's also you know ostensibly a sci-fi fantasy, but really isn't in any way, shape, or form because the setup she it's, goes back in time is sci-fi. But actually, romance, actually, it's a romance uh, with kilts and lots of strapping wee Scotsmen in it. So not what I would normally consider my my sort of TV viewing staple. Okay, and actually, uh, actually, it's very good. All right. Okay. Um, enjoy. The Ronald D. Moore interview. We are joined today on the Empire Podcast by the legendary Ron Moore. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me. How are you enjoying the Highlands? Oh, it's great. You know, that's a beautiful country, lovely people. It's a, it's a great place to do work. Were you always going to shoot up there? Because obviously Braveheart shot in Ireland, you know, for tax reasons, I want to say. Uh, I don't know why they shot where they did. That's going uh, uh, before my time. <laughs> uh, when we approached this project... We kind of said from the out, uh, outset we should do it in Scotland, if yeah. at all possible. It was brief conversation at the very beginning about, oh, you know, you could do it in New Zealand, but we never really even considered that seriously. It was a, a healthy tax break now here in the UK. <laughs> and, you know, we came and scouted uh, up in Scotland pretty early, and it just became apparent that this was the best place to do it. The main character, Claire, who goes back in time uh, to the Jacobite Rebellion period of Scotland. Am I right in thinking that the actress Katrina is at Balfe and she was a relatively late yeah. insert? She was one of the last cast, actually, in the, in the whole project. I think going into the casting project, uh, I thought that we would cast the role of uh, Claire first and that Jamie would be the hardest one to follow. And, of course, it was exactly the opposite. We found Jamie was the very first one cast and Sam, and then finding Claire was the great, you know, Scarlett O'Hara search to find an actress that could really carry the show. I mean, in the first season in particular, she's every scene, every day. You're listening to her narration. You have to watch her think. And it took a very special actress that would sort of embody all the things that we were going to demand of her in the show. And it just took a long time to, to find that person. But once we saw her tape, it was kind of clear that, oh, well, that's her. And these novels have been going since 1991. And there have been, was it over nine? Many. I think there's, there's eight at the moment. And she's writing now. a ninth, yeah. How did you encounter them? Uh, I first became aware of them about, I think, six or seven years ago at this point. Uh, as Battlestar Galactica was winding down, uh, I was having dinner in Vancouver with my wife, Terry, and uh, my producing partner, Meryl. And uh, they were both big fans of these books, but had never actually talked about it. And we were just in a conversation about future projects and what to do after Battlestar. And once they realized, oh, my God, you love these books, too, they, they just started chatting about it very uh, excitedly and said that I should read them. 
and they thought that it would appeal to me because I like history and historical fiction and f- strong female characters. So I read the book, first book, and I was just very taken with it. You know, I could kind of see that it was a TV show, how it would break down into individual episodes. I liked the period. I liked the story. It was a lot of twists and turns that was great for television, and I, I, that's when I bought in. It's, it's a hard thing to pigeonhole genre-wise, isn't it? Because it's got sci-fi fantasy setup, but then no sci-fi fantasy elements. I kind of think, I call it an adventure. It's really an adventure story. It's a big yarn that just sort of in, you know, keeps embroidering and going all these different places. You know, uh, Diana Gabaldon, who wrote the books, will tell you that she, for years she had struggled with booksellers about where to stock it. You know, people kept putting it in the romance section, which drove her crazy because no man is going to walk into the, the romance section. But there's a, a powerful, you know, action component to the stories. There's a big historical fiction. There's political upheaval and wars and all kinds of stuff that appeals to a broader audience than you might think if you just said it's a it's a romance. So there is a, a central romance to the story between Claire and Jamie, but it's really a much bigger tale than that. And it's just fans, you know, it's it's a fascinating um, story in and of itself. And like you said, the the fantasy sci-fi element is just the time travel mm-hmm. that just sort of is the catalyst to get everything going. And you were saying that this first came to you when Battlestar Galactic was winding down. In between then, you've done many more other things. How come Outlander took a little longer to actually come to pass? Well, when I first heard about the, the show, or about the project, and we said, all right, I, I, let's figure out a way to do this. Let's track down uh, the rights holder. The, the rights were held by a man named Jim Kohlberg, who runs a story mining company. And at that point in time, he wanted to do it as a feature film. But I just didn't see it as a feature. I said, well, you know, I just think this is a TV show. I don't know how you're going to boil this, this novel down to two hours and still retain all the things that, that the fans love about it. He said, well, I'm pretty sure we're going to do a feature. And so what we just said, well, let's keep in touch. And every year, Merrill would call him and just say, how's that feature going? And he said, yeah, we're still working on it. And then about three years ago, he finally said, you know what? Maybe it is a TV show. Let's talk about that. <laughs> so I said, great. Took it to Sony. They bought in, and then we took it to Stars and picked it up. Let's talk Star Trek. Sure. <laughs> now, I'm right in saying that you were on a tour of the set originally. This is how you got into the door, that you slipped someone a script? <clears throat> my, 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 this is how I got my start in the business. I was uh, living in L.A., trying to be a writer, taking a series of odd jobs. I was a messenger. I worked at an animal hospital. I did a lot of strange things. But I wanted to be a writer, and I started dating a girl because every great story starts with that. <laughs> and she discovered I was a Star Trek fan because I had posters of Captain Kirk in my apartment. And uh, she said, oh, you know, I know people on Next Generation because she had uh, worked on the pilot. And she said, I could get you a tour of the sets. And they had a regularly scheduled set tour in those days because so many people wanted to see the, the Next Gen sets. And this was like in the second season. I said, oh, my God, I'd love to see the sets. Please, <laughs> please, please. So she made a call and got me on the, on the set tour. And she said, all right, you're on the list. It'll be in about six weeks. And I just decided, oh, I'm going to take a shot. And I sat down and wrote an episode. And I really wasn't that guy that was constantly banging on people's doors with scripts. I was actually lazy and kind of would start scripts and kind of never finish them and then start another one and never finish it. But I, I did love Trek. And I, in my head, I just saw this as an opportunity. And so I wrote a spec script called The Bonding. And when I took the set tour, I talked to the guy who was giving the tour, asked him to read it, uh, and he finally reluctantly agreed because he heard this all the time. And he read it, and he turned out to be one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants, and he liked it. And he gave it to a woman that became my first agent, and she submitted it formally to the show. It sat in the slush pile for about seven months. At the beginning of the third season, uh, new executive producer Michael Piller came aboard, 
And he started going through the slush pile looking for the material, and he found my script, and he bought it and asked me to do a, a second one. And I did a second one called The Defector. And then shortly after that, uh, he had an opening on the staff, and he said, uh, can you come down and start as a staff writer tomorrow? And I said, yeah, and I was there for the next 10 years. And it was, uh, it was a great, lucky, amazing you know, Cinderella break. And so it's, it, it's been quite a, quite a journey ever since. And the bonding, that was obviously a, a warp story. Also warp, but a warp <laughs> story. And you kind of quickly became the Klingon guy, didn't you? I did, not so much because of that story. But once I was on staff, uh, that first day, Michael handed me a couple of scripts that they were struggling with and asked me to, to, to do something with them. One became Yesterday's Enterprise and one... Uh, actually became Sins of the Father, which was started the whole Worf saga, mm-hmm. as it were. And once I had done that, and then there was a follow-up to that, then it became anything that was about the Klingons just kept coming my way. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I, I just sort of became the Margaret Mead of the Klingon Empire without really trying. That's a great stuff, though. Well, I mean, it, all the sort of Gowron, yeah, yeah. Duras, sorry, I'm really trekking out here. Apologies for that. Oh, it was fun. Uh, you know, I saw the Klingons in Shakespearean terms. They were big and grand and you know, the rise of houses and families and the rise and fall of empires. And mm. It was fun stuff to do. And you have a Batleth. I do have a Batleth. I have a, a real Batleth they gave me on my last day. Obviously, this isn't Enterprise, but you, you, you say 10 years. This includes uh, Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Are you the man who personally came up with the pun Trials and Tribulations? No, that actually came up. Uh, I think Rene Chevarria came up with that with that title. So as soon as that was said out loud, you went, "Damn!" Yeah, I was like, "Oh, that's a good one." My uh, long-standing sort of litmus test for judging people's character has been Voyager or Deep Space Nine. So uh, I tried <laughs> that's a it with, good way to go. I tried it with JJ Abrams as well. I'm not going to tell you what he said. <laughs> Deep Space Nine, in many ways, was. I mean, Battlestar Galactica is now held as sort of the standard for real sci-fi, you know, sort of gritty, sort of hard-edged sci-fi. Deep Space Nine pushed it pretty far. I, I always think of that as the first show for me that really showed me what that kind of sci-fi was capable of. That must be something you're very proud of. Yeah, I was very proud of that show. I mean, I really loved Deep Space Nine and that writing staff and that cast of characters. And, you know, we, we pushed Trek as far as we possibly could. It was interesting because it was the only one of the Trek series that wasn't on a starship, and, you know, wasn't going someplace, and it was, you know, set on that station. And so every week, all the problems stuck with you. So the mm-hmm. show kind of evolved to be much more of a continuing story than any of the other uh, series did. And we, it became much more political, it got more religious, it you know, got into the whole Dominion War arc towards the end. And a lot of the thinking uh, of mine that uh, developed into Battlestar Galactica was born in those years at, at Deep Space Nine, going, wow, what if you went even further? What if you shot it differently? What if you got even more morally ambiguous? What if you really had even more flawed characters? So a lot of the the initial just noodling about uh, Battlestar was really done on Deep Space. And you wrote The Search, I'm right in saying. I wrote the second one, The uh, Search Part so 2. So you can't take credit for inventing The Defiant? I did, actually. It was in Part 2, so I did get to invent The Defiant. Well, I mean, you... they, they said, we're going to have this ship, so I got to name it and I got <laughs> to describe it. So. Was it your idea to make it small but kick ass? Yeah, to make it uh, over overpowered, and uh, because it it was trying to put all the power into the weaponry, and, and everything else on the ship was sort of secondary to that. It was the it was sort of a the idea was the Federation doesn't really make battleships, but this was like the closest that they had ever come. Mm. It wasn't a ship of exploration. It was meant to just go out there and kick ass, and that's all it was. But it wasn't just TV that you did. Obviously, Generations First Contact was it you that did the Star Trek line within that. No. In fact, I think I objected to it. Like if I, <laughs> I wondered what you'd say. I that. think Rick Berman really wanted to put that line in. He had been, uh, he was the producer uh, of the series and the, the, the film as well. And he had been looking for a way to work in the phrase, <laughs> you people are on a Star Trek for quite a while. And I was like, really? 
are we really going to do this? This is going to be just such a groaner. And it was like, no, it's great. It's fun. And I was like, all right, whatever. So we just put it in the script. <laughs> Speaking of, of Battlestar, one of the things that shines forward for me is the depth of uh, almost understanding in the sort of the, the military procedure, the technology, whether it be Dreadus, launch tubes, red lines, whatnot. Were you, you know, I, I read somewhere that you at one point considered the Navy as a career path. Is that I was, where that comes uh, from? Yeah, well, I, I have a lifelong interest in military history and the Navy in particular. My father was a, a U.S. Marine in, in the Vietnam War, and it was like a whole library of books in our house that uh, on the subjects that I was just always reading and fascinated with it. In college, I was a member of the Navy ROTC, and I thought I was going to go into the Navy, and I basically flunked out of school in my senior year and lost the scholarship, and that all just kind of blew up anyway. You know, I'd spent some summers in the U.S. Navy, uh, our ROTC midshipmen would go on a, a cruise on a Navy ship in the summer, and I did that a couple of times, which was fascinating. But I also came to realize that as much as I was fascinated by uh, military culture, I didn't really fit into it very well. I don't like taking orders, and I don't like getting up really early in the morning. <laughs> These are two fundamental things you have to deal with. So I can admire it from afar and study it. And, you know, yeah, a lot of the things in Galactica came out of that because I knew a lot about or at least, you know, a relative amount about, you know, carrier operations, particularly in World War II and how, you know, air groups were organized and, you know, what the procedures were. And I just sort of wanted to apply a lot of that technology and terminology to the show to kind of give it a sense of authenticity about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And the, I was, the pilot is great, and then you go straight in when the series starts to 33, which is, to my mind, one of the greatest TV episodes ever. Uh, that, that, is that, would you say, the episode you're most proud of? Is it among... I think it is the episode I'm probably the most proud of. Uh, It was an interesting experience because I wrote it without an outline, without a a story break. There was no writing staff at that point. It took place at a unique moment in Galactica's history because we had done the miniseries. Sci-Fi Channel had not yet picked it up to series. And for a brief moment, there was another network in the States called UPN that was considering buying it. And uh, this was over Christmas of that year. And the studio said to me, you know, if UPM is going to pick it up, they'd pick it up in January, but they would need at least one episode, a script to look at. So could you just give them a script? And I said, okay. And there was like a list of potential log lines for series episodes I had compiled to, uh, you know, as part of the sales document about picking up the show. And one of them was just the fleet jumps away every few minutes because the Cylons keep chasing them. And I said, okay, I'll do that one. And I literally just sat down and wrote Fade In, and I just started writing, and it just flowed, and it was exciting and scary because I had no idea where it was going, and I just kept going through it. And by the end, I was just very proud of it. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting episode, and and it turned out really well. Michael Reimer came back, who had shot the mini, and he shot the first episode, and it it was a great piece of television. And it was just one of those things that you can't plan to do it that way, and I've never done it that way again. Uh, but it just it just sort of poured out of me. Did you encourage the cast to not sleep throughout shooting? Actually, Eddie almost told the cast not to sleep. <laughs> uh, we had meetings where Eddie and the whole cast, he was telling them we should all stay up like really late. I think we should all stay up for days at a time and make it as real as possible. And the cast was like, really? And I think a couple of them did and regretted it. <laughs> and Eddie did it. And but they, had, they were crazy. And they were like, well, can't we just act like we're tired? <laughs> it's supposed to be really, really, really tired. The one thing I did also want to ask you about, not Battlestar related, was uh, the Star Wars Underworld series that mm-hmm. was coming around. Now that was you talked about that. It was about 2011, wasn't it? That that was that was floating around. Something something like and that. Yeah. How far did you get before that kind of got <clears throat> put on indefinite hold? We wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 scripts. Wow. I think over the course of a couple of years. I think this might actually be 2008. 
2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a group of writers, you know, international writers. You know, I was a, one of a couple of Americans, and then there were writers from the UK and New Zealand, and Australia. We would gather at the Skywalker Ranch periodically with George and sit in a room and argue about you know Star Wars, which was extraordinary. It was fun and uh, wacky and really out there. And George wanted to do this show, and he was going to produce it in its entirety, and then just kind of present it to a network. And uh, I think he was. After the scripts were done, then it was about figuring out how much it would cost to produce that mm-hmm. series, which was going to be enormous because in the writer's room, he just kept saying, don't worry about the cost. Just just don't worry about it. More action, more more sets. We, we'll figure it all out later. So we just, we just went for it and wrote these giant episodes. I don't know how you would produce it. And then um, we completed that, and he was he said, all right, I'll get back to you guys, and let me think about it. And then uh, he, and his, uh, he and, his, and Lucasfilm started uh, looking into costs and locations. And, and then next thing I know, they had sold the whole kit and caboodle to Disney, and that was the start of last year. I, in fact, they had never heard about it again until suddenly Bob Iger, who was head of Disney, said, oh, and we've got these Underworld scripts, and one of them was written by Ron Moore. And the next thing I know, people are calling me and asking me about this Star Wars <laughs> series, which we weren't supposed to talk about when we did it. It was like all on the slide. and was like, okay, be very quiet. This is a secret project. And then suddenly Bob Iger says, oh, yeah, Ron Moore wrote one of them, and everyone asks me about this series all of a sudden. It was, it was going to focus on the sort of the lesser-known characters, wasn't it? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't really any of the characters from the, the Star Wars saga, from, mm-hmm. from the six, six, uh, six movies. It was sort of, it was in between two of the movies. Okay. Interesting times. Let's hope one day that it uh, resurfaces. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ron Moore, for being Absolutely. a guest on the Empire Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, time now to review this week's uh, releases in the cinema. There's only one place to start, and that is with Fast and Furious 7, as it's known over here in the States. It's known as Furious Seven, uh, The latest installment in the franchise has started out as a crime flick with cars and has turned into the Avengers with automobiles, uh, pretty much. James, you wrote the official Empire review. I did. You gave this four stars. I did. Helen, you gave it squee stars out of squee. Uh, where do we begin with this? I mean, this is... How do, you, how do you describe this? How do you rate this film? How can you even apply the normal criteria of film reviewing and film appreciation to a series that has just... It's so unbelievably dumb, but very smart about being dumb. How do, how do you? How do you? It, um... it does almost defy description. It has become. I think I said this. Basically, a live action Looney Tune. It's a cartoon. The whole thing. It's mm. mental, um, and it has. You, you, I mean, you go back and watch the Fast and the Furious, mm-hmm. and it's almost impossible, apart from the people are the same, to to reconcile the, the two films as a part of the same franchise. Yeah. It's just mental, but it's mental on a level that I don't think I don't think any other franchise is as ludicrous as this. It's just, I mean, they're parachuting out of a plane in their cars. They're jumping a supercar between, you know, high-rise buildings, and there's a part where there's a bus going off a cliff, and one of the characters is running along the top like peddling bus to not. It's, it is Wiley Coyote. Is what it is. It, it kind of is. There's also what I loved in the scene you just mentioned with the skyscrapers, mm. and it's in the trailer. This is not a massive spoiler, but as as the car jumps out of the building, um, Paul Walker yells, "Cars don't fly!" And I'm thinking, have you not been there for the past three <laughs> films? Cars have flown everywhere. Yeah, there's a lot of flying cars in this. Uh, shall we set up the plot? I was going to say such as it is, but this actually is drenched in plot, yeah. this movie. And um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 
it's kind of crazy the extremes to which they go to kind of justify where characters are going to be and, and whatnot. But anyway, okay. have at it. So we start with uh, Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> that traditional English boy's name, you yeah. know, Deckard. Deckard. Um, he uh, visits his brother Luke Evans in hospital. Luke Evans was, of course, the baddie of Fast Six. Yes. He's been left in a coma after the events of that film. Yeah, he's um, not dead. He's Massive not revelation. dead, which is Massive interesting. Massive revelation. Yes. And Statham vows revenge on all those responsible. He also says bollocks. Bollocks. Bollocks, bollocks, bollocks in the first couple of, couple of minutes, yes. And and actually, his introduction is a beautiful little piece of, of screen business. It establishes his badass credentials really thoroughly yes. in about 30 seconds flat, which is wonderful. Anyway, he then sets out to kill all those responsible. Um, and that, of course, presents problems for our heroes since they are responsible and they don't um, want to be killed no <laughs> i think that's a fair summation yeah um so he first of all he stops off and he kills han solo in tokyo uh, which we've of course seen in fast and furious tokyo drift finally wrapping up that yes. plot point and fast and furious 6 and i still don't believe he's dead nah he'll come back i do love that those sequence of the film because obviously the very end of tokyo drift uh, Vin Diesel crops up and that scene appears in this and there's a part where uh, Lucas Black obviously talks to, to Vin Diesel and then they go and ha continue the conversation and he visibly ages a decade <laughs> in between meeting Vin and going over to the balcony to have a chat with him. Yeah. Uh, Vin has that effect. Um, okay, so he then he then goes after uh, The Rock, Hobbs, um, oh and they have a, a knockdown brawl, it's fair to say. Um, yeah. Which leaves, and you won't believe this, The Rock in hospital. <gasps> so now it's personal for Vin Diesel as well. Yeah. As Jason he ain't Statham. got friends, he got family. Exactly. So uh, the two are on a collision course uh, to help Vin Diesel find Jason Statham instead of Jason Statham continually finding Vin Diesel. Um, Kurt Russell shows up yeah. and offers him... <laughs> <laughs> this film could be any more ludicrous. The only if Kurt Russell has shown up as Kurt Russell. Going, you know, uh, hey, hey, kids! No, I'm Kurt Russell. I'm Kurt, I hear you're having problems with a man who wants to kill you. Believe me, I can help you because um, I'm Kurt Russell. And that, that would have been does. less ludicrous. But there is a point in this that these, this is basically a gang of street criminals who have been turned into the IMF for reasons yeah. which are entirely unclear. Yeah, it's it's um it's Mission Impossible. They've become the IMF, but they've also become the Avengers. And I, I tweeted this after I saw the film, but essentially they're a team of indestructible superheroes who can survive anything you throw at them. Who yes. are trotting around the world, they're globe trotting in order to save the world <laughs> from a uh, an indestructible menace that they created. That's the plot of Avengers: Age of Ultron. <laughs> What the hell is he doing in a, in a car film? What's going on? But I have to say, I mean, the plot of this movie—it's so involved. It's so ludicrously, stupidly involved. It doesn't. There's no need to bring in Kurt Russell as a uh, as a secret agent mastermind, a sort of really cool M figure who recruits Finn and the gang to send them around the world looking for. The stupidest MacGuffin I've seen <laughs> in a long, long time. Which has been lifted from The Dark Knight. Which has been lifted from The Dark Knight as well. So yeah, it's the stupidest MacGuffin I've seen since The Dark Knight. And 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 then they're basically looking for something that will help them find Jason Statham's character. But Jason Statham's character seems to have some sort of Vin Diesel GPS. So he just turns <laughs> up wherever Vin Diesel is. So forget about the plot. Concentrate on what this movie does in terms of its spectacle and its action and how it makes you feel. And there are moments in this, this is the first movie this year that made me uh, throw off my jaded cynicism and just, 
and I, Helen, I wish you'd been there for the screening. I I, felt it's the not same the same way without you. But <laughs> honestly, get up and Jimbo, you were you were with me as well, and I, I just applauded because it is so over the top and yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah. You do have to go with it. Because oh, yeah. the whole point is like literally they're going around looking for this McGuffin. We've got to get this McGuffin. We've got to find Shaw. We've got to find Shaw. He's right there. He's following. <laughs> Turn around. And then they're running off because they've got to get this. No, but you're running off to get the thing to find the guy who's standing next to you. But anyway, you need to kind of look past that. It is, it is just <laughs> such spectacularly good fun. Just all the way through. It's mental. And I think the, the secret to this, I think, and I, I won't say the details because it's kind of a spoiler is, is they show a certain amount of restraint uh, with certain elements and people in the film and I think that restraint is really what makes this work yeah. uh, that they don't overuse certain characters and I think also obviously this is a film where, where Paul Walker died making it which could have cast a cloud over this quite easily mm -hmm. and I think it's to the filmmaker's credit that the film is incredibly upbeat it's incredibly enjoyable yet also that's very sensitively handled very well handled and mm -hmm. while there are elements where you can see the, the CG joins and that his brothers are standing in generally speaking you know it, it works very well and, and actually it adds a, a quite a you know, a, a sort of an emotional note. It does. I mean, I've cried with laughter in the last three mm. Fast and Furious films. Like, literally just completely dissolves into laughter. Mm. But this one did actually make me cry the proper way as well. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of impressive. Yeah, I remember um, Robbie Collin, who writes for The Telegraph, he tweeted something after he saw the screening as well. So I've now cried a Fast and Furious movie. That's something that's happened in my life. That's okay. Weird. But it's true. This is, the, this is a... I think they handled the... Um, their dilemma, the, the Paul Walker, the, the tragedy that happened with Paul Walker, they handled it brilliantly. Uh, but it's really tough to talk about because it's it's a really tough film to watch for me anyway. The first time I watched it, because and I don't, we're not going to do a spoiler special with this for for a couple of reasons. Um, it's really tough to talk about this without getting the spoiler territory. But hmm, what I will say is that you're. I was watching the movie and I was on tenterhooks. I was I was on I I was just worried about how they would resolve that particular situation with Brian O'Connor and the send-off they would give him and uh, they didn't do what I expected and I think what they've done is beautiful and touching and a fitting tribute to the man and a fitting tribute to his, his films and it's very, very moving uh, which, is a, which is a real surprise I think, you know um, I th it was another critic who said that you know this is the first time that this this, this series has been. I think it was a Shiznit actually who was saying that this series has been banging on about family and the importance of family uh, right from the first uh, movie, but it never really felt that it meant it. It just mm. felt like a platitude. That it was just us, felt in fact. Like, you know, was really? it us? Mm. Sorry, sorry, my mistake. Um, and you just felt like they they never really meant it. And this one, it actually becomes true. It actually has substance, and uh, it's a, it's a really really lovely send off. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can see the joints. You can see where they've had to manipulate the plot to make certain things work. And there's a, there's a lovely moment, actually, where um, just before they're about to leap out of the skyscrapers in, in Abu Dhabi, um, <laughs> from skyscraper to skyscraper, and it's pretty much the only time in the entire film where Finn Diesel and Paul Walker have a scene together. Alone. Alone. Yeah. yeah. And... It's really lovely because their chemistry by that point was so nice and so ingrained. It was just, it's, it's actually kind of, it's tragic that scene as well. And as good as it was and as fun as it was, it was like, oh, you get to see these two guys actually relaxing and having a bit of fun and doing that movie star thing. And just realize we're not going to get any more of this. This is mm. it. It's probably that, you know, there was probably more in the script. There were probably more scenes like that because 
you know, Brian O'Connor is a huge important part of the of the franchise, and we're not going to get any more of it. And it's really, really sad. Um, but I was on tenterhooks all the way through it. And, you know, every time there was an action sequence, I was thinking, "Oh my God, is this? What are they going to do? How are they going to resolve it? Is this is this the moment?" Um, and there's some really dark moments in it as well. There's a funeral scene, and there's a there's a there's a sequence where Tyrese is talking to Paul Walker, and they're they're going, uh, you know we don't want any more funerals and, and Paul Walker himself says no there's going to be one more and you just think oh my god yeah, uh, that's uh, yeah that's a, it's a really tough watch at times for me but then I think the second time is going to be uh, a lot easier knowing well what happens and how they're going to resolve it um, for me it you know I think James Wan is the director in this one taken over from Justin Lin who's directed the last four and he just slides effortlessly into the director's chair um, on this one, it's it's over the top, it's bombastic, but you get a sense like Justin Lin that he knows it's ridiculous. Yes, and he, in fact, I know he, I know he knows because I spoke to him the other day. Uh, <laughs> but he he knows it's a blast, and he knows that you should not take any of this seriously. Um, which is why it's a surprise when the real emotion does come towards the end. Yeah, hugely hugely great work on his part. I think just to to rejig the film halfway through like that in response to that real life tragedy and and come out with something this good. Absolutely. Um, we gave Fast 7 four stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're a fan of the franchise, you'll love it. I, for me, it's probably the second best in the series. Uh, Jimbo, you're completely not lead demented. You think the first one's the best in the series. I love the first one, but for different reasons, because it's Point Break with cars, and I love Point Break, and I very much enjoy it. And Actually, I'm, I totally agree, I think, with our reviews of all of these films, which is we gave the first one four, and then it's three, then it's three, and I think the fourth one was probably three as well. Five is a four. Six is a three, and seven is a four. I think that, that bears out quite well. I think you could probably get away by giving a three, too. It gets complicated in some ways. You know, it, has, you know. it has moments. It, there's lots of, you know, drifting. The, yeah, the action in three is great. It's only when anyone opens their mouths. Yeah, <laughs> that's when it falls apart. <laughs> Good point. And also, I think this movie kind of falls apart a little bit towards the end, and again, that's probably a byproduct of stuff. But, um, you know, the, the action sequences in Abu Dhabi and Azerbaijan... <laughs> Of course. <laughs> of course, Azerbaijan. Why not? Azerbaijan, set piece, is possibly the best in the in the franchise's history. Yeah. It's a, a 20 minutes sustained just nonsense, which uh, is, is cool. <laughs> I also love that they bring in Tony Jaa and um, Ronda Rousey just to give people a workout. Like, there's no <laughs> other reason for them to be there. Especially Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Tony Jaa... It turns up as an evil henchman of Chaiman Honsu's character, um, who is evil because plot and reasons. We haven't and even mentioned him, but he's in it. <laughs> he's in it as well. And um, and Tony John and Paul Walker have a couple of good fights, really, really interesting stuff. But Ronda Rousey just literally turns up in the Abu Dhabi sequence and just to have a fight with Michelle Rodriguez and then leaves the film and is never mentioned again. And you just go, what just happened? I don't, but I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, <laughs> This is, yeah, this is the film where you're going to say, I'm okay with it uh, an awful lot. Four stars for Fast and Furious 7. Uh, okay, next we have Russell Crowe's directorial debut, The Water Definer, in which he stars with the lovely Olga Kurylenko. Yeah, so this has um, Russell Crowe playing an Australian farmer called jo- Joshua Connor, um, and it's set uh, after World War I. Mm. Um, and basically, his wife has just committed suicide because she is she's been grief stricken since the loss of their three sons at the Battle of Gallipoli in 1915, which of course was just a, a horrendous massacre of the brave Anzac troops um, due to incompetence in their leadership, uh, mm. who were British. Anyway, um, so Russell Crowe goes to try and at least bring his sons' bodies home 
Um, and so he, he goes all the way. I mean, and, uh, the difficulties involved at that point are incredible, but he goes all the way to Turkey to uh, to try and, you know, find their bodies and, and I guess come kind of come to terms with his loss. Um, and then, as you'll know if you've even seen the trailer, which I thought was a bit of a spoiler, mm. um, learns that one of them may still be alive, may have been taken as a prisoner, yeah, absolutely. and that sort of sets him off. Uh, Kurilenko plays a, a widowed uh, hotel owner, and there's a sort of a, a very tentative relationship there it's it's not the best handled aspect of the film it has to say but it's but it's a really sort of well-intentioned and sort of well-meaning and quite sort of sentimental film i think in, mm. in a way that you maybe don't expect if you just know russell crowe the bruiser i think you maybe kind of don't think he has this, this is in the, him. Uh, this is the poetic side of, of russell crowe yeah. isn't it this is the guy who came to the uh the, you know, baptist and tried to read a poem and and he actually read a poem when he came to the empire awards a few years ago so he that's, did, that's yeah. nice so, um, so I think there's the, there's a kind of a, a sweetness to it that you might not suspect, and, and certainly a lot of sincerity. And you know, this this was a huge, huge kind of important moment in in Australian history, mm-hmm. and I think it, it makes a lot of sense for him to make that the focus of of his directorial debut because it's something that will really, really resonate with with his entire country, and I think rightfully so. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it looks gorgeous quite often I, th- I think the main the main problem with it really is that love story which just doesn't quite connect in the way that you want it to i think it might have been better to keep that a little bit more to one side a little bit more mm. uh, a smaller part of the story maybe a little bit less developed and and we could have really enjoyed the rest but we True. give it three stars it's, yeah. it's a really good start well, i think if you're a debut filmmaker you know clearly he's worked with some cracking filmmakers over the years and i think a lot of it's rubbed off on him definitely yeah. i think there's a lot of promise here and if you're going to aim uh, hi, with your first film, why not aim to ape David Lean, which is kind of what he's done with this? Or mm. you know, it 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 but feels it feels almost like a, it feels almost like the English Patient in a way, doesn't it? It it feels like it has that scope, it has that that sort of mm. scale and that sort of romance. It's 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 not quite as good as that, but no, it's not. I think, but I think you're right. I think there's a bit of that in there. There's obviously a little bit of you know Gallipoli in there. There's there yeah, there's touches of of different things, and I think it's great that you know it shows that how much of a how serious he is about his filmmaking, which I think he often doesn't get credited with. Yeah. You know, as, as being a serious guy as well as just, you know, a star with a bad temper. So, yeah, I mean, lots of credit to him, but I think, um, look forward to seeing what he does next because I think it could be even better than this. Absolutely. Three stars then for The Word of Definer. And then lastly this week we have uh, another film which is brave enough to go up against Fast 7, which is While We're Young, the latest from Noah Baumbach. Uh, James Dyer has just joined Periscope while we were boring him so much with our talk <laughs> of Russell Crowe and Noah Baumbach films that he has joined Periscope and has started following me. No, no, not um, bored, Chris. So scintillated, I felt the urge to live stream and share it with the world. Well, that's uh, that would be ill-advised. <laughs> but uh, but uh, go for it if you if you so desire. Uh, so yes, Hell's Bells, While We're Young. While we're young, this while, is while we're, while, while, yeah. While we're young, please please read out. Don't read it out. Um, while we're young, please talk about that film. Yes. This, so this is the uh, I think it's the seventh film from Noah Baumbach, um, and he's he's one of those indie he's one of those indie filmmakers who I will always got in my way to try and see because basically he always makes really interesting kind of human stories in a way that perhaps you know even my beloved Fast and the Furious franchise doesn't quite offer um so <laughs> what i know it seems crazy doesn't it it's like eating steak nothing but steak will you know somehow damage your health occasionally you need a bit of green don't you, you a bit, do. of, bit of greenberg oh there, oh, there you go well this That's actually does have a link box. to greenberg of course it does um, well done because this is uh, ben stiller as one of uh, a, a childless couple sort of i think it's fair to call them middle-aged uh ben stiller and naomi watts are this couple they're documentary makers and they sort of are kind of rejuvenated and, and fired up 
when they befriend their new neighbours, who are uh, Adam Driver from Girls, of course, and mm-hmm. Amanda Seyfried. So much, much younger couple. And the idea of them hanging out with this kind of dynamic, crazy, cool young couple kind of gets them, you know, to, to sort of, I don't know, oomph things up. But equally, as they sort of, you know, develop this relationship, it, it causes problems in their own mm. relationship. So it's a kind of an interesting cross-generational uh, story. It's a little, it's got a little bit of the Woody Allens about it, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But but very much kind of in his wheelhouse. Um, I think we said in our review that it's a, a sort of a clash of Greenberg, the 2010 Noah Baumbach film, and Francis Ha, and that's probably kind of fair. That seems good, yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, really, really good performances, as you would expect. Uh, very funny, very smart, and sort of a lot of kind of, yeah, cross, cross-generational cross tension. Aren't those millennials awful or wonderful or both? Um, definitely go and try and see it. <laughs> uh, four stars. Four stars there for while we're young. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bombac is cooking with gas as they, they will not say in the poster. <laughs> <laughs> it might Ex- now explosive action <laughs> um, but yeah no, that's really really cool Do you, uh, this is something I learned the, this week that I don't know if you guys know this already or not but Amanda Seyfried okay I know she's been on the podcast before and I can't remember where you talked about this uh, with her but <laughs> she has the word minge tattooed on her foot she does, she does. alright okay because she loves that word she's got a very kooky sense of humour um her Instagram handle is Minji. <laughs> that I didn't know. Minji. Right. So that is it uh, for this week's Emperor Podcast. Um, <laughs> and what a note to finish on. What a segue. How do you get out of that? That's tricky. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more formulated fun. We'll be joined, well, not we, Phil DeSemlin will be joined by Ryan Gosling, who's here to talk about his directorial debut, Lost River. That's like a an art house abs off. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> uh, until then, it is goodbye from Jimbo. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to park my car on the 47th floor of a skyscraper in Abu Dhabi. Apparently, that's now accepted. So, see you next week. Bye.